Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Well, this is it. We are finally here on November, on January 5th, Election Day, or the final day of voting uh, in the runoff elections, as we uh, now come to call these things, since there's so much early voting going on across the state in this uh, year's election cycle. Um, you know, it occurs to me that, and, and I'll bet you that uh, Tamar Hallibun is with us, Tia Mitchell, uh, both from the AJC, and I'll introduce them more formally in a minute. For most political journalists, um, election day is like Christmas. It's a day we all wait for. It's exciting to us. We can't wait to talk to voters, hear how the election is going to turn out. But I also think it's fair to say that this election has been fraught with so much ugliness, um, so many uh, issues of whether or not the November election was fair and legitimate or not, based on President Trump's accusations, um, so many nasty uh, commercials. It's really hard this time, I think, to compare this to uh, Christmas Day. I think, like all of you out there, we are all simply looking forward to getting this over with. Um, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, let's get right to it with our panel. As I said, Tamar Hallerman, who is senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Tamar, am I right? This one, just let's get it behind us. So I cannot hear tomorrow at all. Let me go to Tia Mitchell, who is, of course, the Washington correspondent for the AJC. Uh, Tia, I asked you the same question. Glad this whole thing is finally coming to an end. Oh, it's, you know, even though I'm based in Washington, um, I think I've said it on the show before, I have my TV set up so I get the Atlanta ads. And so I can feel your pain, Georgia residents. We are tired of the ads. You know, you guys are tired of the mailers. I, even though I'm no longer registered to vote in Georgia, I still get the text messages and the phone calls and the emails. And so I think we're all, you know, we want to do our civic duty, those of us who are, those of you who are registered to vote in Georgia, but ready to be left alone. Yeah, uh, Tia, I would be remiss if I did not point out that you have become an overnight uh, uh, Twitter sensation. <laughs> Leslie Jones, the former SNL star, uh, did a critique of an appearance of yours on, was it CNN? Uh, I think it was on MSNBC. MSNBC. Uh, she's now taken to describing how various uh, people who are on the shows are uh, handling themselves, the rooms they're in. She said you reminded her of a second-grade teacher uh, trying to do something nice for someone in your class, I think. Yeah, she said I was calm, very calm. I'll take it. <laughs> well, congratulations. Tamar Hellerman, do we have you with us again? <laughs> Okay, we still don't have tomorrow. Then let me go on and introduce uh, Professor Karen Owen, who, of course, is a frequent panelist on the show, uh, professor of political science at uh, the University of West Georgia. Uh, Karen, it's a real pleasure to have you on what is an important day in the state. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. And this is like a Super Bowl for political scientists. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and we also have with us uh, Dr. Professor Audrey Haynes, who is a political science professor at the University of Georgia and uh, also a frequent panelist on the show. She also oversees uh, the Applied Politics Program at the University. Audrey, welcome to the Big Day Show. Well, excited to be here as always. It's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. Let me, before we uh, keep going here in terms of talking to the panel, uh, Grant Blankenship, our reporter down in Macon, was out at polling places early this morning talking to voters. We have a couple of sound bites from what they had to say. Uh, Sam, are we able to listen to him back to back? Let's do that. Let's listen to the two voters who uh, he talked to and hear what they were having to say about getting out to the polls this morning. <laughs> A peace of mind, a peace of mind. Um, it's been so chaotic for me and my family when it comes to um, the pandemic and the choices that a lot of politicians have made regarding the livelihoods and you know just everything when it comes when it, when it's coming to the American people. Like right now, I know so many people who are at risk of losing their homes, don't have any income. It's, a, it's, it's bad for a lot of people that I know, um, a lot of minorities especially. Grant Blankenship, you're with us now, I understand. What, what does it look like at the polling place that you've been to? Well, you know, I started the morning at a, a, a typically uh, Democratic-leaning box on the east side of town, which in every other election, every other day in this cycle since last spring, there's been a line out the door, and this morning it was crickets. There was a live crew from the local CBS affiliate, and that was it. So on the other end of the county, uh, sort of the Republican-leaning northern suburbs, that's where I did find the line, and that's where I found Joy Jackson, who you just heard from there. Um, yeah, before the polls opened, people were waiting at the door to get in, and um, it sort of jives with what we've what we've sort of been expecting, right? That in Republican-leaning precincts, the, the early turnout hasn't been as strong, and that's where the lines are going to be. And th that was my experience here this morning. So, so uh, we just heard from a voter at a Republican precinct. Uh, you also talked to somebody, am I correct, at, a, at, a Demo at the Democratic? What What is a Democratic-leaning well, no, precinct? Well, no, I actually haven't found anyone in person oh, okay. in one of those yet this morning. Okay. Uh, these are, so both of these voices are from that same, uh, it's the Howard Community Club in North Macon, from that same precinct. And so the other voter I think you have to listen to is a, is a man named Scott Wise, um, who is waited to vote today because he's sort of dubious about how early voting even goes down. Socialism, plain and simple. I think the Democrats are trying to... Uh, create a socialist society and I think the two that are running are hardcore socialists and I think many of them are in the already in place or hardcore socialists. Yeah so, and so uh, and so Mr. Wise also told me that that he didn't trust signature match on mail-in ballots and expected cheating today. I mean these are both things that have been unsubstantiated you know by, by investigations and facts but but that's why he waited to vote today rather than voting early. Grant Blankenship, I really appreciate it. I know you're going to have a very busy day today, and so I'm grateful that you took a couple minutes. And I do think you've set up a conversation we're going to have today. Uh, if you're seeing 
basically decent turnout at a Republican polling place and not so much at a Democratic polling place. Um, we're going to be talking about how that could play out with day of voters. So, Grant, thanks so much for taking a couple minutes. We look forward to hearing your reports later at GPB News. Take care, Grant. Thanks, Bill. The day has just begun. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Um, Tamar Hallerman, I think we have uh, finally established uh, you. Let, let's talk just a little bit about what I just mentioned a second ago, that, that we know pretty clearly that the early vote uh, probably favored the uh, Democratic candidates. Um, and what I'm getting uh, tomorrow from talking to some of the uh, political insiders about this, and I'd be interested in your reaction, is the Democratic candidates could probably, as a result of early voting, be as much as 140, 150 to 200,000 votes ahead in terms of early voting. Um, and, 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 and so the Democrat, the Republicans are going to have to turn around and have a huge turnout today to be able to make up uh, the difference. Yes. Yeah, and what we've seen so far from early voting data is that black voters have been overperforming their their share of the electorate, which is great news for Democrats because you know something like eighty eight percent of black women, especially in in November, voted for for Joe Biden. But traditionally, Democrats have been doing well in early voting. Republicans have dominated day of, and and as you mentioned, they need to do very well today. Um, I saw one analysis this morning from Larry Sabato's crystal ball um, at the University of Virginia. And he mentioned that that if turnout runs higher than about four million, and we're at three million with just the early vote, he thinks Republicans will have a good night. Um, but if it's anything less than that, if a lot of Republican voters stay home because maybe they think the election's a fraud, uh, that's going to be great news for John Ossoff and Rafa, Raphael Warnock. Yeah, you know, Tia, I think that uh, what what Larry Sabato was saying is being seconded by an awful lot of prognosticators, the good ones out there, that the cutoff point here for Democrats to try to win, they've got to hold the vote today to under 900,000 or so. Anything over that probably is going to favor Republicans. But here's another interesting little piece of data uh, to throw at you, uh, Tia. Um, David Perdue on November 3rd lost the early vote by 127,000 ballots, um, but he won Election Day by 215,000 ballots, which allowed him to have a substantial uh, vote count ahead of John Ossoff, but not enough to get by without a runoff. Tia? Right. We have to remember that David Perdue came really, really close for to meeting that 50% threshold even after the general election. So he really just needs to hold the line and, and hope that just a small fraction of the votes that went to the third-party candidate um, go his way, and, and he could be fine. You know, but you, you're right. A lot is going to hinge on how large turnout is today and what the split is between Republicans and Democrats in those turnout figures. And if Republicans turn out really, really strong today and can overtake that lead that Democrats um, created as far as just votes cast, we don't know how people voted, but we know that Democrats were doing better at turning out their voters during the early voting period. Karen, let me get you, Karen, first, and then let me get Audrey in here. 
So, yes, I think Tia hit the point on turnout, right? So today is all about mobilization, and the GOP has to mobilize their voters. They have to make sure they're turning out. And I think I heard that the GOP was asking for a million voters, right, of their people to turn out. And I think the early voting we saw the Democrats were really heavily um, pushing in the metro Atlanta area, making sure Cobb, DeKalb, Gwinnett County were turning out in early voting. And I think the Republicans will be looking across the entire state and where Purdue did well in certain precincts where he outperformed Biden, making sure those voters are also turning out. Yes. And, you know, I would add, too, that one of the things that we have to think about is that, you know, even though Trump is, you know, confused the the messaging, that he, he has obviously done that and sort of put a monkey wrench in what Republicans in this state usually do, which is coalesce and really work together to bring out that vote. Most voters who are Republicans are likely going to vote for Purdue and Leffler regardless of this. I've, I've been talking to a lot of them. And, you know, they traditionally turn out on Election Day. So like everyone else, I think it's going to be close, even though The Hill just had a story. And there was a lot of a lot of bets that um, left, um, excuse me, that Ossoff and Warnock were going to squeak by. Uh, a lot of uh, opinion in that but I think it's going to be very close today, and it is really going to be determined by who has done the best on the ground game. One thing worth noting is that the Democrats can't just rely on on turning back out the folks that came out for them in November. It's worth noting that that because of Georgia's unique runoff system, if that if that wasn't in place, David Perdue would would already be in the Senate. He ran two points ahead of John Ossoff in November. And if you combined all the Republicans who were running in the special election that that Leffler was in, uh, they they narrowly outpaced the Democrats too. So so Democrats have some work to do as well. It's not they can't just skate by today. Um, and they point to numbers of you know, tens of thousands of new voters they were able to register between November 3rd and uh, the, the deadline in December, including a lot of brand new 18-year-olds. Um, and they talk about these tens of thousands of people who've come out who didn't. And, and they have ground to make up as well. So that's something to watch, too. All right. So um, we know that uh, both uh, President Trump and Joe Biden, uh, the president-elect, were in Georgia last night just, you know, confirming for us how crucial uh, the uh, uh, Senate races really are. You know, it, it, it's worth pointing out that uh, think about what happens if Joe Biden does not get uh, both uh, Warnock and Ossoff into office. If he has a Republican Senate, um, it means that Mitch McConnell will continue to kind of rule the Senate with an iron fist that Biden will have a hard time getting uh, McConnell to go along with him on a legislative agenda, that he's going to have to do trade-offs to get what he needs. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean uh, uh, difficulties with doing almost everything he wants to accomplish, which is why uh, Biden is so committed to having been here now twice, and of course Trump here twice as well, uh, because he believes that the Senate needs to remain in Republican hands. All right, that said, let's listen first. President Trump was up in Dalton, where he addressed a large crowd. And uh, let's just listen to a montage of some of his observations to that crowd. Hello, Georgia. By the way, there's no way we lost Georgia. There's no way. The rigged, that was a rigged election, but we're still fighting it, and you'll see what's going to happen. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. 
I hope that our great vice president, our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. No, Mike is a great guy. He's a, he's a, he's a wonderful man and a, a smart man and a man that I like a lot. But he's going to have a lot to say about it. And he, you know one thing with him, you're going to get straight shots. He's going to call it straight. You vote tomorrow, we'll decide which party controls the United States Senate. The radical Democrats are trying to capture Georgia's Senate seats so they could wield unchecked, unrestrained, absolute power over every aspect of your lives. If the Liberal Democrats take the Senate and the White House, and they're not taking this White House, we're going to fight like hell, I'll tell you right now. We have to go, and we have to go all the way, and that's what's happening. And you watch what happens over the next couple of weeks. You watch what's going to come out. Watch what's going to be revealed. So, Audrey, let me start with you and then everybody get involved in this one. Uh, Lots to unpack there, really. Uh, President Trump, uh, number one, starts out by saying, uh, you know, we won the state by a lot uh, uh, and talks about how he was cheated out of that victory. He comes back to that at the end of his uh, of what we played when he uh, says we're going to find a way to win this thing. But in the middle, he says some uh, and, and he kind of references uh, Leffler and Purdue and, and uses fear uh, in terms of the Senate race, which has been the tactic Republicans have used throughout this campaign. But, Audrey, you can comment on all that, but I think there's another important moment here in which we hear President Trump say the vice president will, quote, come through for them, meaning that tomorrow when Congress meets to certify the Electoral College vote, Trump is expecting that the vice president, who in a pro forma way role oversees the final declaration of the winner of the race, will find some way to not certify uh, Joe Biden. Audrey, you can comment on any of that. Well, and there's a lot to comment on. So, you know, uh, very quickly, uh, we'll wait and see what happens there. Uh, A lot of the information that's being discussed about what that process is supposed to be like is really exaggerated and, you know, full of inaccuracies. You know, that type of any kind of action Congress would take would really result from uh, states not having been able to certify. And it goes back to 1876. And I'll give uh, Brett Bauer um, credit because he actually uh, discussed this with Senator Hawley and and raised the issue that in 1876, it's because they couldn't, three states couldn't certify their races. There was all kinds of conflict going on. That process is really supposed to be Pence counting. But I do want to mention that in the rally yesterday, there was one thing that no one really mentioned, and that was COVID. That was uh, international conflict. That was anything that had to do with any of the problems going on in the United States of America. It was all about socialism and, again, full of misinformation. Um, so, you know, that's, that's problematic generally. And I would also note that Leffler and Purdue were both overwhelmed by chanting, you know, fight for Trump and all that other stuff when they actually tried to say something. So it's really that rally was all about Trump, period. Uh- yeah, um, Tia, it, it is um, it's especially noteworthy that, that, as Audrey points out, the president didn't say a word about COVID, uh, speaking in a county which has one of the highest rates 
of uh, COVID positives in the state of Georgia. Um, but he uh, uh, chose instead, of course, to focus on a lot of the conspiracy theories about uh, how he was robbed of the election. Tia? Yeah, and, and when he spoke about policy, it was to paint a doom and gloom picture that wasn't really rooted in reality, but what he said would be the consequences if Democrats won these Senate seats. And so that is where he talked about policy. Is And then he also spoke about, you know, what he thinks were the benefits of his administration. But again, it wasn't really rooted in reality, and it, and it wasn't really rooted in what's probably on the top of minds for regular people, you know. It was very much Donald Trump talking about what he wanted to talk about and not necessarily prioritizing what voters wanted to hear or needed to hear, again, on the eve of such a consequential election. So I think the Trump rally was really about courting white rural voters, really drumming up the base and trying to get them to mobilize. It was not about policy persuasion. It was all about the turnout that he needed from those white voters who have been disenchanted over the last few weeks. And, you know, for Purdue and Leffler, they need college-educated white voters to come out for them and really tap into those. And that's not what we heard at that rally. And that wasn't the point of Trump. So in his messaging, and I think the interesting thing is Audrey mentioned it was a lot of, you know, fight for Trump, and we didn't hear a lot about fight for Leffler, fight for Purdue, and get them, you know, into the Senate so that we can basically hold what the Trump administration had done. And I just wanted, um, Karen just mentioned that Trump's appeal is to white voters, particularly in rural counties. And I just want to make sure we go on the record about this dog whistle, which is him mentioning Fulton County when he really wants to say black Democratic voters. You know, he he even made a point to say we care about counting in Fulton County, but I don't think there were any problems in Cobb County. You know, that right there is him trying to differentiate what he thinks is a demographic difference between, you know, Fulton County representing Atlanta, representing a black city, versus Cobb County, which historically has represented, you know, the white suburbs. We know Cobb is changing, but he's still, you know, again, that's a dog whistle that kind of pedals on stereotypes that may not necessarily even be true anymore for the Atlanta metro area. But I want to make sure the listeners are thinking about that, that that's really the coded language when he talks about targeting Fulton County. Um, Tamar, another thing that happened at the rally that before we uh, talk about Joe Biden's rally, uh, we should mention is that Kelly Leffler got on the stage last night in a very triumphant way, uh, said for the first time, yes, at, uh, when, the, when the Electoral College certification comes up in the Senate tomorrow, I will vote against it. Um, she had been refusing to answer questions that reporters have asked for days. Now she throws herself in with those Republicans, probably about a dozen of them who uh, in the Senate, who uh, simply want to challenge whether the Electoral College was a legitimately uh, uh, arrived at decision. Go ahead. 
Well, I mean, for starters, it's just worth saying that this effort in the Senate is not going to work. Um, you need a majority vote in both chambers to sustain an objection. Uh, Democrats are obviously against this. Mitch Majority, or sorry, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is against it and has been pushing Senate Democrats to reject it as well. So this effort is futile. That said, it's a great way to whip up the Trump base and, and get them excited about you, which is exactly what she needs to do ahead of tomorrow. So she got called on stage briefly by the president last night, mentioned it to roars of approval. Um, but then as she uh, stepped down, you could hear the chants from the crowd, which was saying, stop the steal and defend Trump. Um, so as even as much as, as Trump was talking about Senator Leffler's accomplishments and David Perdue's as well, um, you know, it was all about what can they do to defend the president. It had very little to do about them and their own policy achievements in D.C. So, tomorrow, I want to give you one chance at this. I mean, I have to get to a break. But before I do, I'd love your take on this. Um, and maybe after the break, if others really want to weigh in, we can. But I do want to get to Biden. Just to what extent do you believe that the way in which Trump has comported himself in terms of Georgia between the phone call to Brad Raffensperger on Saturday, the way he spun the conspiracy theories again last night, once again, uh, listed all of his grievances, attacked the governor, actually said, I'll be back here in two years to support Doug Collins if he, in a challenge, a primary challenge of Brian Kemp. Go, take all of that and tell me what your sense is of how much this motivates Republicans to go to the polls today. It's a gamble, right? It certainly is going to help his base. Um, those diehards who, who maybe aren't even Republicans but are Trumpies, um, who, who might be a little concerned that the election is rigged and might not want to come out, this helps them. I think it's risky for the suburbs, for those college-educated, traditional Republican voters um, who might not have voted for Trump in November or who may have held their nose and done it, who might you know, in a normal year, support somebody like David Perdue or Kelly Loeffler, but who might be so turned off by the way that he's talking about Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger that they stay home or even worse, go for Ossoff or, or Warnock. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get to our first break of the show. And when we come back, we're going to listen to what Joe Biden told his supporters yesterday and talk about a lot more on this runoff election day. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on this Election Day edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you here. We've got a wonderful panel. Uh, Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the AJC. Tamar Hallerman, the senior reporter at AJC. Professor Audrey Haynes of University of Georgia. And Professor Karen Owens of the University of West Georgia. Um, all right, let's do, do this. Uh, Joe Biden was in Atlanta last night. He uh, spoke at a rally in the parking lot outside of the old Turner Field. It's worth noting that President Trump couldn't resist taking a shot last night at the Biden 
uh, rally, he said, uh, oh, he had about three cars, people in three cars turning out. That wasn't the case. Biden had a pretty good turnout. And here's just a little of the closing argument that Joe Biden made for why he thinks voters should go out and vote for Ossoff and Warnock. The power, the power is literally in your hands. Unlike any time in my career, one state, one state can chart the course, not just for the next four years, but for the next generation. If you send John and the Reverend to Washington, those $2,000 checks will go out the door, restoring hope and decency and honor for so many people who are struggling right now. And if you send Senators Perdue and Loeffler back to Washington, those checks will never get there. It's just that simple. The power is literally in your hands. This administration has gotten off to a god-awful start. The president spends more time whining and complaining than doing something about the problem. I don't know why he still wants the job. He doesn't want to do the work. Um, Tia Mitchell, uh, a couple of things about that sound. Number one, we know that from the very beginning of his campaign, when, when Joe Biden announced that he was going to seek the White House, he focused on restoring, essentially, hope and respect to the office of president. It was in the aftermath of Charlottesville. Um, and he's still talking about that uh, in terms of this runoff, uh, uh, suggesting that Raphael Warnock and uh, John Ossoff will bring hope, honor, and decency uh, back to our civic life. And uh, it's a vague message, but it seems to resonate with an awful lot of voters out there. But then again, t uh, he also, of course, Tia, uh, talks to people. Uh, he, he has a good argument to make, he believes, uh, in terms of the efforts to get a new relief package out and the fact that Democrats aren't get, didn't, weren't able to pass the uh, larger sums that they felt people ought to be getting. So talk to us about his messaging. Yeah, I think, you know, President Biden, it's interesting he isn't really discussing that call that Trump made to Raffensperger, and he still is trying to not get too far down in the dirt with President Trump. I think the Biden-Harris administration just believes that it's just, like, not worth it because in a couple of weeks they'll be the ones in the White House. But that being said— you know, he was clear that he, you know, he wants that Democratic majority in the Senate. There, That's going to be the difference between a rough and tedious first two years, at least, and one that can be a lot easier to implement his platform, the promises he's made to the American people. So I do think, you know, President-elect Biden is very invested, and you saw that in how he spoke uh, Monday afternoon, hoping to turn out voters for Ossoff and Warnock, but also, again, trying not, still trying to not be divisive because he does want to kind of be that healing energy for the nation. You know, I, and I would, I would follow up with um, Tia said, she's absolutely right. You know, Biden has the mindset you know, he truly believes in the institutions. He is he truly believes in reaching out to others. And I think a big part is that he's probably a little bit incredulous that Trump is still behaving in this way. And, you know, problematically, there have been a lot of people who have sort of sat out on the sidelines, not believing that someone could act this way. 
therefore enabling someone to act this way. And that's problematic. And I would just want to caution Republicans. If, um, if we say, for example, we don't see uh, Ossoff and Warnock winning those seats, and it is difficult, you know, you don't need gridlock for the next two to four years. That is bad for Republicans. If they can't, if they have a continued internal civil war, even in places within the Senate where there are divisions about what can be done and problems aren't solved, you know, they're going to get some of that blame too. And the country will problematically may falter. So, you know, people need to think seriously about what the, what, what is going on in their governance. It's not just about this, you know, unreality that we're seeing. Jamar? What was striking to me was how concrete President-elect Biden was in terms of what would happen if um, Ossoff and Warnock are elected versus the Republicans. He talked about uh, folks not getting $2,000 stimulus checks. He talked about uh, state and local budgets having, um, you know, giant holes and not being able to fund teachers and first responders and cops and firefighters. And I think providing those literal examples uh, is a really effective way in kind of showing folks what's at stake here. And I think some of that's a little bit lost. You talk a lot about these these huge issues like socialism, which, um, yes, I think scare a lot of people and, and motivate some voters. But I think showing the concrete, here's how it impacts your day-to-day -day lives on a local level, uh, can be an effective tool, too. So I, I think Tamar's right. The policy conversation is very concrete so that he's sticking to that. Also, Biden was elected on more of a moderate message. He doesn't want to go too progressive and get divisions amongst his own party. And I think, you know, let's think about what Audrey said, which was a valuable point and how much Biden respects the institutions. He also came from the Senate. So I think as a president and with Harris as vice president also coming from the Senate, they value what the Senate can do and what those senators are responsible for. And I think having two Democrats from Georgia in the Senate will allow the agenda to move forward. And if they had two Republicans, there's gridlock that, you know, Audrey mentioned, you know, voters have to think about what they want. Um, for some voters, they want that check. They do want gridlock in some ways because they want it to be a slow, moderated process. And, you know, I think we, we have heard and seen in research that usually when you have some divided government, you do get moderation in policy. You get a bipartisan push. And that may be what the Republicans need if they don't have Trump there still continuing to speak, right? They'll have their own two, their own two feet of the party to stand on maybe again or recapture something in the party. Um, Tamar, before we uh, – we got a lot of other subjects in addition to talking specifically about the runoff dynamic itself – but I think it's worth uh, uh, talking just a very sh brief uh, period of time here. You had a, a really good piece in the paper the other day in which you describe why we have these runoff elections uh, at all, especially in a uh, in a in a general after a general election, a statewide general election where the like we know the the balance of the Senate is at stake. One of the things I want to point out and then let you describe it in a little more detail is. David Perdue, ironically, who won 49-plus percent of the vote, came within an inch of getting that 50% plus one needed to avoid a runoff, would have been elected on November 3rd if not for his cousin, 
Sonny Purdue, <laughs> explain what I'm talking about because it's really a fascinating story. Yeah, so so this runoff system has been in place in Georgia uh, for more than a hundred years. It, it has its roots in the county unit system, which the the state enacted in 1917. Uh, but it really kind of came into solidified in in the early 1960s. And there's been little discussion, truly, in the legislature about completely getting rid of runoffs. Uh, but over the years, there's been a ton of tinkering as parties have gone, you know, have lost power, won and lost big Senate races. They've tried to change the rules. So Democrats did this after Senator Weich Fowler lost in 1992. Um, Republicans ended up changing it back when they uh, won the legislature in the early or sorry, in the mid 2000s. Um, but in the last couple of years, we really have not seen a big push to change that. But this piece explores a little bit kind of what happens if David Perdue and Kelly Leffler do lose. Uh, there could be an effort then for Republicans, especially as they're opening up the election code now in this upcoming legislative session. Maybe they do want to change it if they think it can buy them a few more years. And here's what specifically happened in terms of David Perdue this time around. Um, Sam, maybe we can post actually a link to Tamar's whole article. It's really worth our listeners uh, reading it. In 1992, as you point out, David, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Weichfowler lost his second term in the Senate to Paul Coverdale. Uh, Fowler would have won if a runoff hadn't been needed. He was close to 50%. After that, the democratically controlled legislature and uh, governor, Zell Miller, changed that threshold from 50% plus one to 45% uh, because Fowler would have then uh, been put in office. Well, in 2005, when the Republicans took control and Sonny Perdue, David's cousin, became governor, they were concerned that that 45% threshold would put continue to put Democrats in office. And so they pushed it back up to 50% plus one. And so as a result, Audrey David Perdue has no one to blame but his cousin Sonny for why he's not taking his seat in the why he didn't take a seat when the Senate convened on Sunday. Absolutely. And that's why when parties make decisions like this, when they have control of legislatures, they should always think, you know, multiple uh, permutations down the road, because at some point it will come back to bite you. Okay. Uh, Tia, before we get to a break, I think it's important that we follow up a little bit on the uh, phone call, which uh, has gained national, international attention that uh, President Trump made to Brad Raffensperger and Ryan Germany, the Secretary of State's attorney, on Saturday. Um, we've now learned, thanks to reporting uh, from uh, your folks at the AJC, that Trump had actually tried on 18 different occasions over a period of time to reach Raffensperger, apparently to have this con conversation. And Raffensperger essentially made it really clear he didn't want to talk to the president about this at all. That's really interesting to you. Yeah, um, you know, Raffensperger said, you know, because there was so much litigation pending and the president and his supporters had been suing the secretary of state, that he just didn't think it was proper to have that phone call. Um, they finally gave in, you know, after, I guess, a lot of the pending litigation had been dismissed. And and I'm sure there was a lot of pressure. You know, you don't like not taking the president's phone call. Anybody would feel a little bit of pressure. Um, but I think it's interesting 
what I found most interesting is that kind of Raffensperger knew what was going to happen. Like he knew there was going to be a phone call. He knew it was probably going to have some pressure, maybe some things that folks found questionable. And so they went ahead and recorded it. And then he knew that eventually the president would um, perhaps not accurately reflect what was said on the call. And then they were ready right there to release their audio. And so it kind of unfolded exactly how the Secretary of State's office predicted it would. But it's so interesting how it's like the president who you would, you know, normally when we think about the leader of the free world, we think they're, you know, these great political minds and all this strategy. But there doesn't seem to be much when the president does things like this. <laughs> uh, Karen, uh, there are people who think that President Trump may have committed a criminal offense by trying to uh, illegally or allegedly illegally influencing uh, the changing of votes in uh, the election. Uh, it, it, the bigger question is right now, because the likelihood of prosecution seems relatively dim for many, many reasons we could certainly get into. But the bigger question is, does this have an impact on people deciding to vote or not to vote today? Does it encourage Democrats to say, oh, my gosh, we've got to go out there and do everything we can to defeat the forces of Donald Trump, uh, Leffler and a Purdue? Or does it encourage the Republicans to say we are getting out there to make sure that we support the president in all of his efforts to point out the illegalities of the election? I mean, how do you read this? So I think it does have some impact, but I don't know that it has a tremendous impact as of today because most voters probably had their minds made up going into voting today, who they were selecting. I think what it shows, again, is that we have a president who wants to be at the forefront of attention and wants to make comments. He, he wants to win this election. He's not going to let it go until, you know, Inauguration Day and what may transpire. I think for Republicans, they're going to question you know, the division of between the parties. But again, I think it all boils back to people were really probably decided and are going to vote who they really were planning on voting for today anyway. All right, uh, let's take a break. But Pimar, very quickly, are we going to have a result of this election late tonight? Tomorrow by Absolutely noon? Absolutely not. Thursday after? What are, we gonna, what are we looking for? You know what? Let me hold that question. Let's do this. Let's take our break because that's really something we might want to all talk about. So let's get a break out of the way and we'll come back and talk about when the heck are we going to know who won these runoffs today? This is Political Rewind. Tamar Hellerman, Dia Mitchell, Karen Owen, Audrey Haynes, all with us for Political Rewind today. All right, so I go back to the question. Tamar, we'll know the outcome, won't we, by midnight, 1 o'clock this morning, uh, tomorrow morning? We'll know who won these races, right? Oi, um, probably not. Uh, if I were, <laughs> I think we'll have, Oy, we might a have a decent. <laughs> I think we'll have a decent idea of, of how close the race is, uh, probably by midnight tonight. But I don't think we're going to have a true sense of who the winner is until tomorrow afternoon, 
Thursday. And, and this has huge implications, right? Because David Perdue is no longer a sitting senator. He lost his seat at yeah. noon on Sunday when his term ended. And so Georgia now only has one representative in the Senate. So that's going to continue until these results get certified. And if it's close, if we have recounts and legal battles like we saw in November, this could take weeks. Yeah, Tia, I, I think that if Democrats uh, manage to do the same thing in the Senate races that they did in the Biden victory and, and win over the Republicans by a very small margin, then we are going to see exactly what Tamara is talking about. Republicans are not going to drop their efforts to talk about fraud, to talk about recounts. And I mean, it, we're in for another long siege if that's the case. And Tia, it does seem to me it's more likely that a challenge like that would come from Republicans if they lose by a small margin than Democrats if they do. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, I think it depends. You know, we know what the Republicans' argument will be. It might not be based in It'll be a repeat of some of the arguments that President Trump made. Whether those arguments will have much, you know, traction, they're likely to make some of the same arguments because they've been setting that up all along. I think for Democrats, it's less clear if they if it's if it's close and Democrats are losing. It depends. Right now, we're not seeing widespread issues at the polls. We're not seeing a lot of complaints about long lines or or things that in the past have been what has concerned Democrats about the elections process. Now, we know that, you know, absentee ballots still haven't been counted. And if Democrats think that, you know, there's some issues with signature matching, for example, or or things like that, maybe that could be where Democrats come from. Um, but I think it'll be less likely for Democrats to just kind of follow the Republican Trump book and just say, well, it was rigged without much evidence because they spent the last two months, you know, criticizing Republicans for doing that. So I think it just depends on what we see on Election Day. But so far, it's, it seems to be issue free. I don't think we'll have results by tomorrow. And I think it will be close. I mean, right now we know it's a very tight race. I think, you know, just following Tia's comments on the parties. So, yes, if the Republicans are losing and it's close, they're going to raise concerns about fraud and issues. If Democrats um, are also in that same position where they might be down and losing, they usually run with the, you know, legal challenges of suppression. And so we'll have to look at see if there's probably questionable, maybe provisional ballots that were cast today. That might be something that raises concerns for them. But again, it's tough. Like each party going in, right, they have their narrative about what's happening in the voting process. And if you're winning or losing, at what point are you willing to take a stand for that? Or when are you willing to concede? Uh, by the way, Karen, you just raised a question that I, or a point that I think is worth saying just a little bit about uh, provisional ballots. We now know that there have been several thousand provisional ballots uh, around the state, I think several of them up in the northern metro area. And we know that Democrats are much better prepared than Republicans to pursue uh, voters who have those, you know, been, been told their ballots are provisional and they have to be cured. Apparently, the Republican Party has not done a very good job 
preparing for dealing with provisional ballots, which is fascinating because in a very, very close election, uh, being able to get to a voter and making sure they know, yes, you can cure your ballot and have it count could be uh, crucial. Audrey? That is uh, absolutely true, and that is one of the things I was referring to when we talked about the ground game. Just, you know, the the the, the work to actually uh, get people to the polls and then make sure that their votes are counted and that all and that they have access to information. In fact, Stacey Abrams was on MSNBC last night, and there were multiple times where she put out that 1-800 number to call if you had an issue. Um, Republicans will learn. But I would um, argue— um, that, you know, the Pandora's box is open. If Republicans use the strategy of saying there's fraud, there's fraud, there's a conspiracy, there's fraud, you know, one of the things that parties do is they learn from each other and they, um, they, will, they will utilize the same tactics. Like I said, if you do something and you think it's going to work for you in the short term, be wary of what the long-term consequences will be to elections and our institutions. Uh, I, we're, we're, we've only got about three minutes left, but Audrey, as long as you got the ball and then Karen. Audrey, how, how interested have your students been in this election, and are they going out and voting? Um, hell yeah. I will just say that. An expletive for today. I've never seen students as engaged as they are right now. And I will also say um, on the Democratic side, again, the ground game, I have never seen as much direct mail focus on getting out that, you know, 18 to 20-something-year-old group. It is visible. And minorities in the state, I have seen so much direct mail for Hispanic and Asian voters, too, more so on the Democratic side. Uh, and Karen, your students? Yes, I would say our political science majors are very engaged. And we are, uh, as a professor, I'm getting actually emails daily from different groups asking me to contact students to tell them to get out to vote, encouraging them to get out to vote. I also saw with the different rallies yesterday, some of my students at those rallies. So yes, they are motivated. They wow. are there. And that's exciting to see. All right. All right. Uh, Tia Mitchell, a big, big day in Washington tomorrow. I'm assuming you're going to be following uh, the action in the House and the Senate as the electoral votes uh, come before them to be certified. Yes. Yes, we. I will be at the Capitol, and I'll be covering it for the AJC. And we do expect Georgia to be one of the states that um, Republican members in both the House and Senate object to tallying um, our electoral college votes. And so that'll go to a debate, and then there will likely be a vote. We expect that vote to fail, but there will be a challenge of Georgia's electoral college votes. Uh, by the way, uh, if you want to follow what happens in Congress tomorrow, gpb.org slash elections. I'll mention it again in tomorrow's show. And tomorrow, I can't imagine you're not going to be having some role in watching and reporting on how this all unfolds today, tonight, and in the days ahead. Live blogging for the rest of time. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. We'll be watching what you have to say. Tamar Hallerman, Tia Mitchell, Karen Owen, Audrey Haynes, thank you so much for being with us. Um, we're out of time today. We'll be back tomorrow. We're on live twice uh, because we think we need to be here for two to see how things develop. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. And thank you for voting. And if you haven't done it, go out right now. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>